it's a privilege for me to be able to come and share scripture every once in a while. I thought I'd begin by saying that my role model in life are people just generally who enjoy March. I don't enjoy March at all. So if you enjoy March, I I want to get to know you, take you out to coffee and see what makes your life tick because I don't understand at all. But we're almost there. Spring is coming. It's getting closer. uh, And I can't wait personally. So hopefully uh, you were able to share someone who is meaningful in your life, who shaped who you are, who you're becoming. Uh, Those are really important people in our lives. and this morning, we get to talk about how Jesus shapes our life in that sort of way. We're, we're continuing this series called Making the Wrong Things Right. That's us uh, kind of focusing on the cross before Easter comes along to ask the question, what does Jesus accomplish on the cro- cross? What difference does that make in our lives? So before we jump into it, let's pray. Welcome God into this time where we're approaching scripture, where we're listening uh, to him. God, we love you. Uh, We're here um, coming from a lot of different stories uh, of weeks. God, I pray, as uh, Pastor Stephanie said earlier um, in announcements, God, that you would create a space of rest in these moments for us. Uh, This is a space for us to connect with your word, to hear from you, to get leadership from you, God, uh, to renew our trust in you, to... uh, help or give you an opportunity to shape our lives uh, in the way that you lived your life, God. So uh, we also pray in Jesus' name over the school that you would, uh, God, give it peace in this time of restlessness when spring is about to burst into action. God, would you give the teachers peace? Would you give them calm? Would you give the students uh, peace and calm, God, would you bring your reconciliation here to this place? In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I'm going to grab this mic over here. Sorry for your suggestion, Dan. It was great. This is hopefully uh, when Stephanie grabs this mic, uh, a stand-up comedian uh, suddenly emerges. I don't think that's going to happen with me, but we'll see what happens. Um, Maybe this is a joke coming up in my notes, so get ready. That's a, that's a, that's a horrible way to start a joke. <laughs> I've already failed. Has anyone found themselves in a situation where they just completed a set of Ikea furniture and they have one more piece? And they have no idea where it goes? Has anybody experienced this? I've experienced it far too often, so that's why I'm sharing about it. But this has kind of become an analogy for other elements of my life. I kind of just uh, see instructions and examples as suggestions instead of mandatory, which gets me into a little bit of trouble. Uh, I spend part of my work life as a property manager, which means I have to do a lot of handy things. And so I've gotten myself in some situations where I probably should have paid someone to do the thing that took me eight hours to do that they can do in a half hour. Anybody resonate with that? But as as I've made these mistakes in my life, it's it's been funny to watch Christian Ann's response. Sorry, Christian Ann, I never tell you when I'm going to talk about our relationship and sermons, but here we go. Um, Christian Ann's my wife, and she notices this about me, so she kind of gets this look like, oh, you're going to do that by yourself, huh? Nice. 
Not so much. This happens when, uh, for some reason, I think I have superhuman strength with, like, things that need to be lifted. But usually it just results in her helping me out. So she usually rolls her eyes a little bit and says, why can't you just help for, or ask for help? So uh, I've noticed this about myself, and I think it, it's funny to joke about those things, and Ikea furniture is just Ikea furniture. But for me, it reveals something deeper about myself that God's uh, uh, challenging me in. And, and the most frank way to talk about it is pride. I don't know if it's because I believe the myth that I need to be self-sufficient or there's something about my identity that's insecure that I feel like I need to do it myself. Of this, like, uh, I got this syndrome uh, and I can just go ahead and do it. And, and that, you know, causes problems in my furniture department, but it causes problems in other parts of my life as well. In my relationships with others, I uh, lean on my own intuition, my own impulses, instead of having uh, guidance in those relationships, instead of having pause. This usually happens when I become tired, when life becomes really full, and I feel like I'm just living on the edge of my own impulses. And I, I end up hurting other people by the things I say, by leaving things incomplete in our lives or undone. I end up hurting myself by making poor decisions about how to leave my life and move forward. All of this stems from this fear-based pride that I operate out of when I don't take the time to pause, be still, and look uh, for guidance in my life. This creates a sort of brokenness in my life that I experience with other people in the world and in the sermon series, we're, we're talking about what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. And, and, and part of that conversation is naming what the primary problem that the cross resolves for us. And that primary problem is called sin. That's the word that Bi the Bible uses for it. And we've, we've talked about this image of sin being a sort of distortion of the way things are supposed to be in relationship. So uh, Michael, I believe, gave this image a few weeks back uh, if you could put that on the screen, of distortion or brokenness that affects relationship in four different directions. It's brokenness that affects our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our relationship with creation itself, our relationship um, with ourselves even. And this sort of brokenness is what Jesus entered into the world to come and restore us from. So there's lots of different metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about how Jesus fixes this problem, how Jesus, as the sermon series title suggests, makes these wrong things right. So we've got a whole list of those we've been using. Uh, and the Bible uses a lot of different words, a lot of different metaphors to describe it. Reconciliation, ransom, substitution, justification, redemption, sacrifice, salvation, light. It's because what Jesus accomplishes is bigger than what can fit into one way of speaking about it. So this is our attempt in, in this season pre-Easter to, to kind of look at this from many different angles and ask in a fuller sense, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? And, and, and the angle I want to look at through today uh, comes from the passage Philippians 2. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can flip uh, to that. It'll be up on the screen if you want to pull out a smartphone. But we, before we get to that text, let me give you a little context of what's going on, what, what Paul, the author of this book, is speaking into. And it, it might seem curious to you why we're, we're hanging out in Philippians when we're, we're focused on a series on the cross. But 
uh, and jumping out of the Gospels. But this here, I think, demonstrates well another aspect of what Jesus accomplished for us. So in Philippians, this is a a letter that Paul himself is writing from prison. So this is a letter where he himself is experiencing uh, weariness, tiredness, all this resistance to his mission. And what he's speaking into is a bunch of tired people who are a little worn out and they're getting a little edgy with each other. There's a little undertone of conflict in the book of Philippians. And, And right off the bat, Paul is speaking into that and helping them and trying to remind them why they are what they are. What, what brings them together? What's the central factor in their community as Christians? And he speaks into them. And in the chapter before, he says, live a life worthy of your calling. Live a life worthy of the gospel that you've responded to. This thing that Jesus has accomplished on the cross, live a life worthy of that. So that's the context that we come into the scripture with. And let's just... Um, approach the scripture asking the question, what does this mean for what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and what does this mean for us? So let's read through Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if any of you have encouragement with being united with Christ, if, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, He's calling for unity here. Having the same love as Jesus there, he implies there. Being one in spirit and mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Another word there would be pride. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then Paul recites what scholars think is one of the earliest poems in the Christian community, one of the earliest hymns that uh, they sang together. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So in some sense, Paul is bringing them back to a hymn that's most meaningful to them. I've noticed this with uh, Christians who've been a Christian for a while and maybe grew up in the church singing hymns. Uh, I hang around some of these elderly folks sometimes, and it's fascinating to just uh, watch them break out into song. When someone says something like, great is thy faithfulness, they're just all of a sudden singing that song. And this is what that song would be like for these early Christians. This was something that was so deeply meaningful to them. And it begs the question, why was this so deeply meaningful? And I think when we hear it, it has some themes that we hear all the time this time of year leading up to Easter, right? 
Jesus died on a cross for our sins. It's great. But I think we need to pause and realize the radical notion that this is suggesting. How amazing this is. So think about this. There's a, a God who in his very nature comes to earth to be with you and to rescue you. Imagine how that's way different than the messages they were hearing about the gods around them. And this is a Greek context, so they were used to the pantheons of gods who always wanted something from them, who always wanted sacrifice from them to appease them to get a little bit further along in life. And here's a God who comes down to their level because he loves them, to be with them. We can't lose that. I've been studying this scripture for a while, and something recently has been sticking out to me is in these verses where it talks about Jesus' nature. That word is actually a word for form. Jesus' form takes on who was the form of God and did not use that to his own advantage, but took on the form of a servant. This language is in a group of words that's used in uh, Plato's philosophy of forms, if you're familiar with that. It, w- it was what the, the, the thought of the day was. These forms, this, this perfection that we ought to pursue. And the Greeks were all about pursuing perfection. So uh, all of their statues, all the dudes had ripped abs, you know. They spent their whole life saying that really what you ought to be about is pursuing perfection in your life. Doing everything you can, everything that you have hold of or using everything to your advantage to pursue perfection in your life. Doesn't that sound a little bit similar to the themes in the world that you hear today? Isn't, isn't kind of the narrative of our time, do everything you can to your own advantage to advance your standing in life so that you can have the symbol of perfection in your own life? So you can have the status symbols that say to people, you've got it together. And here's a group of radical people whose anthem it is to talk about their God who rejects his, or doesn't reject, let go of the perfect state and relationship he had with the Father to be with us. Instead of pursuing perfection, he pursues service. He pursues sacrifice. Even so much to die on a cross, the very symbol of what it's like to use your own power and privilege over and against another human being. That's what crucifixion was all about. It was saying, we have the power in this situation, and we're going to use it on you. And our God, who these people are celebrating in the most fundamental way, is the one who takes on that. Instead of asserting his own power, he receives it. He takes it on to himself in the form of a servant, in the form of a cross. So what Paul is saying here, or what, what is he trying to say about what Jesus accomplishes on the cross? And what does this mean for the distortion we experience with one another? What is Jesus accomplishing here? And I think Paul is saying that Jesus shows us that it's not through the pursuit of perfection, but the pursuit of God's heart in self-giving love that we discover what it truly means to be human. Let me say that again. Jesus shows us that it's not through our pursuit of perfection in our lives, but the pursuit of God's heart and his self-giving love that we discover what it means to be truly human. N.T. Wright, who's an author I read often, wrote a book called The Day the Revolution Began on uh, Jesus' crucifixion and his sacrifice. 
And he talks about this, as the title suggests, as a day that sparked a revolution. And I love the word revolution because it's, it's got that renewal part of it. Like renewing, sparking something that was fundamentally true about the people who are a part of it. And what I love about that is that it captures the reality of that what Jesus did for us is in his own sacrifice and example, he gave for us an example of what it means for us to truly exist as the way God created us to exist in the garden originally, as image bearers of God, one who is a, a God who is defined by self-giving love, that our identity is bound up in that. And by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he makes a way for us to be in relationship with God and be led by God and live into that self-giving love in our own lives. It goes like this. God is love. God created us in his image and in his self-giving love image. And we were deceived in the garden. We chose a fear-based pride. Adam and Eve chose Fear and pride when the devil said, did God really say in their own heart, they said, I think this is a better way than God has given us. And later Jesus saved us from that mistake, but he just didn't save us from something. He saved us for something. He saved us to back to our original vocation as image bearers of God, people who live with self-giving love, people who live empowered by the Holy Spirit for the sake of others. Jesus says all this crazy stuff all the time. He says, for whoever wants to save their life has to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. Jesus isn't just being radical there and just trying to be provocative. He actually believes that's the way to true life. He, He actually believes that that's the best thing for us is for us to let go of our ego, let go of our pride, let go of the lives we would love to construct and discover in that letting go who we truly are. Because that's the relationship that was designed for us from the beginning. To receive our identity from God, to receive his leadership in our lives, and to flourish as who we were created to be. These loving beings who are others orientated and not orientated on our own perfection and ourself. I love TED Talks, so I was uh, perusing the TED Talks uh, recently as I do with like an empty Thursday night, and I watched this tech, uh, TED Talk by Michael Norton, Norton, and his title is How to Buy Happiness, which I hate that title. <laughs> right off the bat, I was like, this is interesting. I'm not going to like it. Let's watch it. Um, <laughs> But I was fascinated because he's just being a little cheeky with the title. What he means is that they did this research where they did this uh, experiment with college students and a different sampling of adults uh, in Vancouver and in uh, Africa and in Ghana. So a lot of different samplings. And what they would do is they would get these participants of the experiment to sign up for this and they would give them an envelope in the morning. And in the envelope it said one of two things. There was a sum of money in there of different denominations from $5 to $100. They just had a range of sampling. And, and one of the envelopes to the, to the group said, spend this money on yourself today. And what they did at the beginning of the morning was rate them on their happiness and fulfillment. So they would give them a scale to 1 to 10. How do you feel fulfilled and happy and is there meaning in your life? 
And then they gave him that envelope. And so the first envelope was spend this on yourself. The second one was spend this on someone else. You can't spend this on yourself. We're not going to give you any instructions. Just spend it on someone else. And then they would take, they would call him at like the end of the day and they would ask them, can you rate your fulfillment, meaning in life, and happiness? And I think you probably know what they found and they discovered. That the people who spent the money on themselves, there was literally no change to their happiness or meaning in life. But the people who just with a simple $5, $20 being asked to spend part of themselves on, on someone else rated themselves on average two to three points higher than when they started in the beginning of the day. Now that's a nice social experiment, but I think God would look at that and say, yeah, duh. That's, that's what I designed humans to be. That's how I designed you to be from the beginning. And so what Jesus accomplishes on the cross is to reveal to us who we truly are as beings who are designed to be self-giving, to give of ourselves as the very, very core of our identity. And Jesus does that in the most ultimate way on the cross. And he divests himself in the most ultimate way to show us that it's not about ascension, but it's about divestment. Uh, divestment in our lives, that it's about what we can give in our lives, it's not what we can accumulate in our lives. And this sparks a revolution. This is how God is making things new in the world through Jesus, through us, through his example. I love what verse 12 says as, it, as Paul continues. He says, therefore, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill God's purposes. Now this verse has been a point of contention a lot about like, do we have our salvation or we don't? I think that's a misadventure. I think it's really clear that God saves us. That's something we receive from him. There's nothing we can do to earn it. But what he's talking about here is working it out. This working it out is responding to what God has done for us. And he says that's full of fear and trembling because it's risky to practice this self-giving love. It's a risky to give of yourself when you're not sure if you'll get hurt. When you're not sure if you can be vulnerable with that person and trust them with that information. When you're not sure if you're going to get anything back in return. It's risky. We live our lives of self-giving love with fear and trembling, but that's how God through us changes the world. Jesus' spirit is in us as Christians just to do that, to inspire us, to lead us to self-sacrifice. Christians have called this throughout the century, centuries the crucified life or the cruciform life, meaning that the model of the way we live our lives is the model of the cross where we give ourselves to the world because we believe wholeheartedly that that's how we're transformed and that's how the world is transformed. This sparks a revolution, and I love hearing about little bits of early Christian history. And one I want to share with you this morning, I heard from a missiologist, uh, Michael Frost, in a talk uh, just a few weeks ago. He discovered this little letter from an emperor, Julian is his name. This happened uh, in 360 AD. And Julian's an emperor, and he writes to his governors, the people who are supposed to be enacting his leadership in local places. 
and he writes about the Christians. And he says, we got a real problem on our hands, man. He doesn't talk like that. It's like in Greek and really formal. But he's like, we got a real problem on our hands, these Christians. What are we going to do about it? He's like, this is what we're going to do about it. I'm going to send you a bunch of money, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to go out and feed all the poor people. You're going to welcome strangers into your home, and, and you're going to do all of this stuff to compete with the Christians. Because we can't keep up with these people who are letting strangers into their homes, which is taboo in that day, who treat their spouses as equal participants in the marriage, an equal leader in their lives, in their household, who bear or, or who are, take special care of those who are dying, who will go into cities where there is a plague instead of run for their lives. They're screwing this whole thing up, Julian says. They're messing up the empire through their self-giving love. This revolution has to stop. This man who has all of the power in his day is terrified of these ordinary people who are just giving their lives for others. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing what people who are living into Jesus' example can do to empires, to the powers that be? the powers that benefit from the distortion that we experience in relationship with one another in our lives. Living in the way of Jesus, in the example of Jesus, has the power to change the world. It has the power to transform our very lives. I don't know about you, but I can look at my life and see all the ways where I'm still holding on to my power and privilege because I'm scared if I let it go that I'll lose something. And whenever I make a decision out of that mindset, out of that fear, I feel a little dead inside. I feel a little death in me. Conversely, when I have the courage to pay attention to what Jesus is saying in my life and respond out of courage, even though I don't, when I don't know what the outcome is going to be, I feel life inside of me. I feel more alive than when I was holding on to something that I wanted or that was important to me. I love that image of holding on because in some translations of verse 6, I believe it is, where it talks about Jesus not taking advantage of his own nature as being God, some translations say uh, grasping, not grasping onto that reality. And I love that. I love that because the invitation that Jesus leaves us on is this invitation to let go. Just look at the body language of the cross for a moment. Look at the body language of how Jesus uh, got to the apex of what he was trying to accomplish here on earth. The body language is this. Now, what's the normal body language of someone in power who's accomplishing great things? I don't know if I can do this. This is how you feel. When life gets tough, don't you? This is the posture that's natural, at least for me, in relationship with others when I feel fear. I'm, I'm, I'm covering my heart. I'm grasping onto what I have, and I'm leaning back. The body language of the cross is open. It's saying my life is not my own. It's here for the benefit of others. And it's in that cruciformed body language, that life, that we discover who we truly are. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We take communion every week. 
at Mill City. And uh, this week, as I was reflecting on this practice and what it could mean for us, I was reading a little bit in John when Jesus, uh, or at least in that gospel, uh, is with his disciples uh, before the cross draws near. He's having supper with them. And this is where we get communion. He takes a piece of bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. I'm giving my very flesh and bones for you. This is my blood for you. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then after that, he gets down on his knees, puts on the uniform of a servant, and starts to wash the disciples' feet, something reserved only for the lowliest of people at a party. This is the God of the universe doing this. And then he says in John chapter 13, verse 15, this is the example that I have set for you. This is how you're to love one another. And when you do this, the world will know that you're mine. Jesus accomplishes saving the world through this example. This is how God works through the world. When we have the opportunity to let go of the things that we hold so tight and have opportunity to give ourselves to the world in love after the example of our Savior. Communion servers can come forward. In this moment, maybe just, just think about what you may be holding on to. And maybe this practice of communion today for you can be a letting go, can be a remembering of the sacrifice of Jesus and how he invites us into this crazy life of giving ourselves so that we can truly discover ourselves and love the world. There'll be people on the sides to pray. If you feel like you've never accepted that life, but you want it, there's people who want to pray with you about that and answer questions you have. So let me pray, and you can come forward and take communion when you're ready. It's gluten-free, uh, so you can, uh, anybody can participate. If you're a follower of Jesus, you just take a chunk, and you dip it in the, in, in the juice as you go by, and you partake. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, we're, we're, we're constantly confronted with the amazing reality of your sacrifice. And God, uh, reminded that there's no condemnation in your name. This isn't a legalism. God, you, you, you have given yourself freely to us as a gift and, and ask us to enjoy responding by giving ourselves to you and to others. God, as we, as we practice this, God, remind us that you lead us into life with your example. Jesus' name. Amen. I love that line. You gave your life to love, so will I. That's the example that Jesus gives us. We thought we'd end our time together in a song that's familiar to us, the doxology. In the same way that Paul quoted a hymn that was familiar to the people he loved, we're going to finish with this act of worship which is the true response to how, how much Jesus sacrificed for us, what free grace he gave us. Our response is worship. So would you join? And I invite you to put your hands 
in somewhat the shape of a cross just to embody uh, this life of surrender that Jesus invites us into as